where Paul was giving them comforting words to tell them that those who died in Christ are not going to miss out on anything, uh, that when Jesus returns, they will be raised and they will get to be with him forever, just as those who are alive will get to be with him forever. And we covered all sorts of things as we talked about that. And we were kind of in the middle of the conversation when we quit. I don't know if there's anything else you want to say or ask about that, but I'll open the door for that if you want to. Anybody got anything you want to say or ask about in connection with chapter 4? Uh, well, it wasn't with chapter 4 per se, but... Um, so, whenever Timothy left, was Silas with him? No, no, no. I'm not Timothy, was he with Paul? Well, we know in Acts 18.5 that after Athens, the next place Paul went was Corinth, was Corinth, and Silas and Timothy both came to Paul in Corinth from Macedonia. And he said he thought it would be good, better to be left in Athens alone. I'm guessing from that, Silas was somewhere. Maybe he sent Silas back to like Maria or something like that or he sent Timothy to Thessalonica but since both of them come down to Paul the next place from Macedonia and since he talks about being alone I'm assuming Silas was not there with him. good question other questions and comments I have a last question about our discussion yesterday okay. can dead people hear us and see us I don't think so, because of Ecclesiastes 9. While I will admit this isn't a whole lot to go on in a book like Ecclesiastes, still in all, Ecclesiastes 9.5 says, For the living know they will die, but the dead do not know anything, nor have they any longer a reward, for their memory is forgotten. Indeed, their love, their hate, and their zeal have already perished, and they will no longer have a share in all that's done under the sun. I think that's saying, Ecclesiastes 9, verses 5 and 6, that when you die, you have no more participation in or involvement in this life activities. That's what I think it's saying. So I would say that. Other questions and comments? Yes. When it says we're created like God's image, well, I think when it says we're created in God's image, it's not talking about we look like God, but we are created as beings with a spirit, with rational self-determination and things like that. I think it's more of a spiritual image, not a visual image. Anything else? Alright, he continues this topic of what happens when the Lord returns, but focusing on some other questions relating to that in chapter 5. Would somebody read 1 to 11? <laughs> but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labored pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. 
Um, for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. So I think he's moving on to talk about the timing of Jesus coming back. And, uh, well, he says you guys know good, good and well what? That it comes as a thief in the night. Now, in what sense does Jesus come as a thief in the night? We don't know when. At an unexpected and sudden time. Without warning, thieves don't send a warning postcard to get you ready. Um, so Jesus will come back at an unexpected time. He also compares Jesus' return to what other event? Labor pains of a woman. Which, how is Jesus' return like a woman's labor pains? Unexpectedly. Unexpected and painful, perhaps, and sudden and maybe unavoidable. You know, it's going to happen. You can't escape them. You know, when the labor comes, there's not a whole lot you're going to do about it other than endure it. So, that's how Jesus' return will be. We know very well that we don't know when he will return. Now, that has some practical consequences that are logical. In 4 through 7, he says, But you are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. Now, if the day were to overtake you like a thief, that would be like getting you on a day you're not prepared. Do you all lock your houses at night? Yeah. Those of you, I don't, but those of you who do, um, how often do you lock your house at night? Well, why do you lock it every night? Do you really think that a thief will come every night? Safety, protection. You don't know when, so if you don't lock it every night, it'd be just your luck that the night you didn't lock it is the night the thief would come, right? So that unexpectedness means you have to stand always prepared. Don't let Jesus' return catch you like a thief, not ready. Well, now what do we? What does he say we have to do to be ready? How do we have to live? In the light. In the light. What does that mean? Light causes us to see. Yeah. Live in righteousness. I think that's the idea. Light and day are terms that refer to to living righteously, faithfully before God. The night and darkness are symbols of evil and wickedness. And there's a whole lot of monkey business that goes on at night. You know, when do people more commonly drink, more commonly go to nightclubs? more commonly womanized, etc. Maybe there's even a reason for that. You know, you feel a little more at liberty to do wrong things when it's night, because it's dark and people can't see you as well. You feel a little bit more anonymous. So he says, you be prepared by always living in the day in the light, not in the darkness in the night. And uh, he says also in 6, be alert and sober, be ready. 
you know, stay watchful, always having your, your standard of behavior as what fits the day and not the night. Comments and questions through verse 7. In 8 through 11, in 8, since we are of the day, let's be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. You see those three again together? Faith, hope, and love. And that's a part of our preparation for Jesus to come back. Because God wants to save us. He wants us to be with him, and that's our goal. No matter what we're doing to be with the Lord, and, and thinking about the fact that one day we'll be with him forever is a comforting thing. He says, build each other up and comfort each other with these words. So Paul takes a lot of time in this letter just talking about Jesus' return, what it will be and when it will be and how we need to be ready for it. That's something we ought to be thinking about a lot. Is Jesus coming back? Are you ready? Comments and questions? Um, I kind of have a question. Okay. Like, do you think that God knows, like, when Jesus is going to come back? Mm -hmm. Like, do you think there's, like, they know, like, a certain date or a certain yeah, time? So. Or, really? I think God knows everything will happen. Okay. <laughs> That's right. Matthew 24, 36. That's exactly right. Then... You know, neither the angels nor the Son of Man, only the Father. So he's not waiting for like a specific thing to happen? Like well, maybe he is. That still doesn't mean he doesn't know when it will happen. You know, Second Peter 3 says he's patient, not wanting any to perish. So maybe he's waiting for a few more to come to, to him. So you think that Matthew 24 is talking about the judgment? Yep. All right, other comments and questions through verse 11. It's just, it's talk about guardian angels. It just has nothing to do with Thessalonians. But guardian angels. But we don't have to talk about it. I mean, there's just lanes, and then if we have time, we can talk about it. Uh, just Matthew 18, uh, 10 or whatever would be the best passage to go to for that. And Hebrews 114. Any other extraneous questions? Is yours extraneous or on topic? No, it's kind of related. Oh, wow. Um, you just mentioned, you know, you think God is waiting for more to come to him. Do yes. you think that he knows who's going to come to him? So how do we still kind of have free will? Well, that's a good question, and that kind of blows our mind, because we only know future events that we control. But I think the, the concept is God knows what we will freely choose. I illustrate it with this. And this is, I, we really, if we think too much about this, we'll flip a you know, circuit in our brain because it's beyond us. But back in 87, when I just moved to Kentucky, the University of Kentucky basketball Wildcats were on probation and they were on TV on tape delay for their home basketball games. And I got interested, and I became a UK fan at that point. And uh, I watched those games like on tape delay at 11 at night, which was a great time for me because I was back from my studies by then. And uh, I really tried to make sure I didn't find out how the game turned out. 
because they'd been played earlier. It was just shown on tape delay. If I didn't know how it turned out, then I could really, you know, kind of like get into the game because I didn't know who was going to win. And, uh, and, you know, so, you know, those tapes that they made that I saw, they were actually based on the free will choices of like the players and the coaches and the refs and all that during the game. You know, it was, the, the tape was, was an actual entity, but, but, but it wasn't, it didn't fix the game, it just reflected what the game determined. It just showed you what was being played. Well, what if there was a way to actually see that very same tape before the game's played? The tape that is based upon the free will choices of the players in the game at that time. Well, we can't possibly do that. You can't see something that hadn't happened yet. You know, so from our perspective, that, there's no way to compute that. But I think God can do that. Not see a tape he fixed. He can see the tape that is based upon the free will choices of the players, the coaches, and the refs. He just sees it before it happens. But it's the same thing. It's still what we determine. Like I say, that's really beyond us because we can't possibly do that. Yeah. Um, it was explained to me like... If, like a parent takes a little kid to an ice cream shop and like every single time the little kid gets ice cream, he always picks strawberry. But when they get to the ice cream shop, the parent might go ahead and still say, what kind of ice cream do you want? Even though they know that child's going to pick strawberry, they go ahead and ask them. And they give the child free will, but they already know the outcome. Yeah. That may be true to some extent. Any illustration we use is uh, inadequate. That strikes me as just God having a real good hunch. But but however we look at it, I think God does know what we'll do. But it certainly doesn't determine what we'll do. We determine what we'll do. God just knows what we'll determine. But if you think about that too long, you'll blow a gasket. So. Pretty much my head's going to explode. Yeah, yeah you just, we just get to be honest. Well, there's a lot of things about God that are beyond us. You know, we're not going to fully fathom the Lord. How could we? And how arrogant to imagine that we could even, you know, begin to do that. So, anyhow, that's what I see. Other comments and thoughts on anything through a letter? All right, 12 to 15. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you and to esteem, the, esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves, and we encourage you, brothers, to admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and everyone. Is that what you said? Yes, that is what I said. So, he, he says in verse 12, he speaks of uh, a group of people who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. What do you those people are? The elders? The elders. I think so. Wouldn't that fit the elders? They ought to diligently labor among them. They do have charge over them in the Lord, and the biggest job of an elder is to give instruction. An elder is primarily responsible for feeding the sheep. So I really think he's talking about the elders. What does he say we ought to do toward them? Esteem them very highly. Yeah. 
really esteem them, appreciate them, value them, respect them because of what they do. That's a very helpful and important function. And when we see people working hard in important jobs that help us spiritually, we ought to appreciate them and live in peace. That'll sure help the elders have fewer headaches. Comments and questions on 12 and 13? I think so. I don't think there's any other group that fits all of those qualifications. Particularly having charge over you in the Lord and giving you instruction. I think probably only the elders fit all of that. Though, the principle that we ought to respect people based upon their work and service is certainly a valid, valid principle in any way. Right, other comments? Yes. Would an apostle fit this? Maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see that. Other thoughts? Why does it I think because that's a very important way of, you know, making the elders work easier. If they got to settle a bunch of petty disputes, what a headache. We'll live in peace. They won't have to arbitrate all our fights. That's what I think. Even though I think he's been talking about the elders in 12 and 13, who does he address 14 to? So I take this as roles for all the Christians, not just the elders. And what should brethren do in verse 14? Warn those who are unruly. Hmm? Now, those who are unruly would be people who don't follow the rules. You know, they're they're not living right. What should we do? Admonish and warn. Sometimes we're too worried that we might hurt somebody's feelings. And so we don't warn them. We don't tell them the thing that we ought to tell them. But it's a lot worse not to tell them and let sin run its course. Better to tell them. Better for them and better all the way around. So do that with admonish and exhort those who are straying away from the path, but not everybody are. Sometimes they're just faint-hearted. That is, they're down and discouraged. What do you do with people like that? Comfort them. Yeah, comfort, encourage, kind of lift them back up again. Some people are weak. What do you do with those? Encourage. Yeah, help them. Be a blessing to them. There, there's a, a very parallel passage in Jude, verse 22 and 23, that goes through kind of a similar thing. You know, people at different stages of spiritual need and how you treat each one differently according to their situation. But but this is brethren. Brethren, Christians in general, have a responsibility to help each other when they stray, when they're down, when they're weak, and get involved to try to help build them back up. I think that's just honey, Um... And then, Christians are supposed to be patient with all men and not seek revenge. You know, with everybody, we don't retaliate. We leave the, the, the getting even job to God. We don't take it for ourselves. Alright, comments or questions through verse 15. Make sense? Alright, how about 16 to 18? 
Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, here is God's will for us. That's how he uh, labels this. And it's kind of a brief summary of constant responsibility. Now, you know, there are some things that uh, we... You know, we, we, we do them in some, in some occasions. They kind of come and go in our Christian life. Take baptism. Is baptism a, uh, an important responsibility for a person? Is it something that you would say, be baptized always? Be baptized without ceasing? No. No. <laughs> and everything be baptized? <laughs> no. We understand that it is a critical responsibility, but it's not something you keep doing. It's a one-time action, assuming it's done properly the first time. But there are, and then there might be some things that are just to be done on certain occasions. You may the Lord's Supper, something like that. You wouldn't say, well, you know, uh, in everything observe the Lord's Supper. Or observe the Lord's Supper always. No, there's certain times for that. But there are some things, like these three items, that... There's always something we need to do. And in verse 16, it's rejoice always. Now, why should we always rejoice? Because well, we're God's children. How, how much of the time? All the yeah. time. We always have Exactly. Because God is the source of our joy. He never changes, so our joy ought to continue. This, by the way, is the shortest verse in the New Testament in Greek. Uh, not that that means a whole lot, because we put in the verse divisions, but, but it is for whatever trivia that you'd like uh, there. But in, in every situation, we see God's hand, we understand God's constant grace, and we rejoice over that. And then we pray without ceasing. And you know, sometimes people misunderstand what that means. When I was growing up, uh, people tried to really wrestle with that idea of how you could do it without ceasing. I remember people coming up with the idea, well, you always ought to be in a prayerful attitude. I really don't even know what that meant. I don't know if they did or not. But prayer isn't an attitude. Prayer is talking to God. So, what does he mean, pray without ceasing? Does it have to be 24-7? You just never stop praying? Always. Um, this morning in Beth's class, she kind of touched on the prayer a little bit. Okay. She said that um, it's just having God always on your mind and having that mental connection with him so that we are focused on the goal. Yeah, that's a good thing. That's still not praying. Having God on our mind and praying are still two different things. Yeah. Also, in that class, it, it really showed how Nehemiah, in that case, prayed without ceasing. Yeah. In every situation that he did, he never yeah. put himself first before going to God. Yeah. Praying without ceasing is like not abandoning the practice of prayer. Not quitting praying. Not that it's just a continual prayer that never is interrupted, but that you don't stop praying. Praying is something you continue to do. Uh, you don't spend days, weeks, months without praying. That'd be you'd cease to pray. Now, if you prayed 30 minutes ago and you prayed 15 minutes ago, uh, but you haven't prayed in the last 15 minutes, 
you haven't ceased praying. <laughs> you know, you're continuing to pray. Um, so I think that's really the idea. And we have a lot of reason to pray, and a lot of reason to pray off. Uh, but this is not saying be engaged in one long 24-7 prayer. And then in everything, give thanks. That's, that's an interesting statement because there's so many things that are hard to give thanks in. But he says in everything, you know, give thanks. Um, you know, I remember reading one time about <laughs> a man who was looking at this passage who had just been robbed. How would you give thanks if you'd just been robbed? Material things to distract you. Okay, it, it relieves us of some things that could be a stumbling block. Huh? He still has God. He had material things that he could rob. Yes. Yes. What else? He got rich. Don't be thankful for that or not. He said, well, you know, in spite of the fact he robbed me, I didn't have much. <laughs> so he thought that was a blessing. And that he said he gave thanks that he was the robbie and not the robber. Um, you know, what else did he say? Oh, that despite the fact he robbed me, he didn't kill me. You know, I, he had several things. I thought, well, I'm pretty sure. You know, I wouldn't necessarily at the moment of being robbed be thinking about things to be thankful for. But there is a sense in which in every situation, God is blessing us and helping us and he's with us. And there are things to be thankful for if we look at them that way. It doesn't mean that we're just unrealistic, pretending everything's wonderful when it's not. Make believe is for, you know, fairy tales. But it means that there are blessings at all times to be thankful for. Sometimes we're just not looking for them. We're not grateful enough. So he says, this is God's will for you. This is the constant of the Christian life. That we rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. How about some questions? Yeah, Hannah? Um, we were talking about how rejoice always and how what are encouragement because yeah, Jesus, God loves us, yeah. Um, and I think that's a good point for people who don't rejoice always. Um, like for someone who's always upset about something, um, kind of makes you wonder how much God is actually really in their life at all. Yes. We might not even be thinking about his blessings if they're not leading us to rejoice. Other comments? Okay. 19 to 22. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, test all things, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now, I believe this is linked together. When he says not to quench the spirit or despise prophetic utterances, I think those things go together. How, how, how does the, the spirit and prophecy link? The prophets inspired by the Spirit? Exactly! It's the Spirit that produced the prophetic utterances. Now, how do we have contact with the Spirit's prophetic utterances today? 
Yeah, we have the Bible. We have the prophecies actually in written form. So for us, we would say, don't despise God's message. Don't quench that. Um, so, does that mean that we ought to believe everybody who comes along and says, oh, I've got the Spirit? I, I've got a prophecy from God? It's like our story. It's about the this yes, it is. So, what should we do? What does he say? Test all things. Yeah, absolutely. Don't just accept something without verifying it. Test everything carefully, then you hold fast to what's good and you abstain from what's evil. But God, God wants us not to look down on prophesying, to believe his message, but he doesn't want us to believe everything. So he wants us to be discerning uh, about what we actually accept as his message. Does that make sense? That, that all, all fits together in that passage. Do people today sometimes say things that they say are in the name of God that aren't really from God? Yeah. At times I haven't changed much as far as that part's concerned. Do you have questions and comments on this section? just extend on one point here that I thought was kind of interesting. When he says to not quench the spirit, we use the word quench for what kind of situation, what kind of thing? What would you quench? Quench thirst. Yeah, we do do that. That's not what I was thinking of, though. Um, but that's good. What else do we quench? Fire. I think probably he's thinking more of like the spirit is a fire. Well, just think about the work of the Spirit in our lives. How do you go about quenching fire? There's, there's several ways. What would you do to quench a fire? What's one way? Yes. Smother it. You know, if you put enough things over on top of the fire, you can smother it out. Well, isn't that what can happen with the Spirit in our lives? can be so covered over with all this other stuff, doesn't get any air, it doesn't dry, it doesn't grow, it just sort of dies out. How else can you quench a fire? Water. Yeah, with water. You could put an anti-fire ingredient directly against it, and you can sort of beat it back. And sometimes people do that. They, they do things that actually directly oppose the work of God in their lives. And then what's another way? that we can end up quenching a fire. Don't feed it. That's exactly, if you don't add any fuel to it, it burns out. Well, that's the same way with the fire of the Spirit in us. We don't add fuel to it. It's the same thing as quenching it because it'll eventually just die out for lack of anything to burn. So I think that, those are just interesting thoughts, but the main thing here is believe God's message. Trust the prophesyings, the the, the things that the Spirit inspired, but not uncritically. Test them and take the good, reject the bad. Comments and questions? Alright, how about 23 to 28? 
protect blameless testimony of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers of the Holy Spirit. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So he's praying that God would sanctify them completely, spirit and soul and body. Now there's a lot of debate about how to look at this spirit and soul and body. Some people, probably the majority right now, are saying, well, there's really no difference. He doesn't mean any difference by that. He just means all of you. But I'm not ready to take that yet. I believe that it's true to say we are three-part beings. Now, spirit and soul mean various things in various passages. Sometimes they're interchangeable and sometimes they are. But if we divide us into body, soul, and spirit, what is the body of the Yeah. The material, the matter. You can have a living body, you can have a dead body. You got, still got a body, you got stuff there. Right, what's the soul represent? If it's body, soul, and spirit, what's the soul? be the life. Isn't there a life that, that, that is not the same thing as the body? Because when you die, does your body disappear? No. Does your life leave you? Yes. Um, does an animal have a life? Yeah. And, and, and a body. But now the spirit, I think that here is referring to the part that God put in us distinct from the animals that gives us self-government. Um, that, that, that is the part made in the image of God. So we're actually made of three things. The, the, the body, the life, and what makes us us. Our and all of those, he's praying for God to sanctify and purify and make complete by his uh, great power. And he says he can bring it to pass. God can make us complete and pure and holy. Comments and questions on that? How do we, like, I don't know, I think with the soul and the spirit, how do we know, like, I don't want to say, like, which one's which, but how do we know that it's not, like, switched? Spirit and soul are complicated words because they're used in so many different senses. But soul is more commonly used for the life, and spirit is more commonly used for the immortal part of man. You can just look them up in a Greek concordance and run them down all the references and see what you find. I think that, I think that is the case, but yeah, that's that's the best thing I know. Um, it, it's complicated when the words themselves mean different things in different passages. You'll see. Our words do too. We just don't think about it. What 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 about the word run? What does that word mean? Walk as fast as you can. Uh, that might be what. Is that what it means to you? Move, Move quickly. Yeah. Roll. Yeah, water and run. Or what? Yeah. Or even a car. And so forth. So what about what you get in your pantyhose or whatever? To run. Yeah. You know, but, not much to do with those other runs, I don't think. But we, we use that, and there's tons of words like that we use in different ways. Well, they use soul and spirit in various ways. So you really have to determine by the context and even by the author who's writing what they mean by those terms. 
But here, when he puts them all three together, I think the body is the material, the, the soul is the life, and the spirit is what li- lives on with God. Uh, even when we die. And then is reunited with our body. All right, comments or questions about that? Through verse 24. Well, his concluding exhortations are pretty simple. What does he ask for in verse 25? Pray for us. Yes. Did Jesus ever ask for that? Yeah. He said watch and pray with me so that you won't enter into temptation. Did Jesus ever ask somebody to pray for him? I don't think so. Paul did a lot. But I think Jesus was in a different category. And it wouldn't have been appropriate for him to ask that. Then, what does he say in 26? Greet all the brethren with the holy kiss. Which I think is like saying, give a kiss to all the brothers and sisters for me. I think he's saying, greet them for me with a kiss. As that's a common greeting format in the New Testament. And then, what does he say ought to happen in verse 27? Yeah, because remember, there's just going to be one copy. You're going to read it in the assembly. You know, it'll take a long time for somebody to actually make the copy, you know, by hand. So he wants it publicly read. And then he concludes the same way he began, with the grace of our Lord Jesus. This book, as all of Paul's writings begin and end, with God's grace, all of our life is in circle. All right, comments or questions on anything here in First Thessalonians? It is a good book. There's a lot of things in it, a lot more that we can get into, but I think that's been a pretty good introduction. I appreciate you. You've been really good. You've been very participatory, eager. I know it gets tiring after all this, and I appreciate your eagerness to, to learn and listen. And uh, so, you've got about uh, 10 minutes to get your Thank you. Thank you.